it's it it I, I've been thinking about it for for a while, and I guess it all stems from the fact that um, I I always think about sustainability, mm-hmm. and um, I don't agree with how a lot of chickens are raised um, in the industrial sense, and so mm-hmm. I I like to eat eggs, and I think they're you know a, a part of a a balanced diet, mm-hmm. and so um, I've never actually eaten chickens in my life because I've always been like this is an, a beautiful animal, and mm-hmm. it, this this started when I was very very young as a toddler, and my mom never served me chicken. That was really nice of her, um, but I've always thought that they were beautiful, and I never agreed with having a ton of chickens stuffed in a cage and raised in agriculture. So. Um, I thought that this would be a great way to, you know, get something that we appreciate and eating eggs Mm -hmm. and also have something to look at and that are really cute and fun. Um, And they all have little personalities. So uh, my kids have really enjoyed watching them. And, but the problem was, is that there's a big startup cost and a lot of time (laughs) to get them going, right? Because you have to build a coop and you have to learn about them. So during the pandemic, we had all this extra time on our hands and decided to take the plunge and do it. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, go to Solpre.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. That's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a former Division I swimmer. She's coached youth and college level swimmers. She has her PhD in biology. Currently, she's working as an education specialist at the American Society for Microbiology headquarters. Um, she spent over 100 days at sea working on her research in a previous uh, career move. And currently, via the pandemic, she has some chickens that she's raising, which I'm definitely going to ask her about. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rachel Horak. Thanks so much. So, Rachel, because I didn't get to ask you before we got going, we'll, we'll jump into um, the obvious thing. Why chickens? What, what, where do the chickens come from? I, I don't know that it's everybody's inclination to say chickens are going to be my pandemic pet, as you, as you put it before we got going. Yeah. It's, it, it, I, I've been thinking about it for, for a while, and I guess it all stems from the fact that um, I – I always think about sustainability mm-hmm. and um, I don't agree with how a lot of chickens are raised um, in the industrial sense. And so mm-hmm. I, I like to eat eggs and I think they're, you know, a, a part of a, a balanced diet. Mm-hmm. And so um, I've never actually eaten chickens in my life because I've always been like, this is an, a beautiful animal. And mm-hmm. it, this, this started when I was very, very young as a toddler and my mom never served me chicken. That was really nice of her. Um, but I've always thought that they were beautiful. And I never agreed with having a ton of chickens stuffed in a cage and raised in agriculture. So um, I thought that this would be a great way to, you know, get something that we appreciate and eating eggs Mm -hmm. and also have something to look at and that are really cute and fun. Um, And they all have little personalities. So uh, my kids have really enjoyed watching them 
and but the problem was is that there's a big startup cost and a lot of time <laughs> to yeah. get them going right because you have to build a coop and you have to learn about them so during the pandemic we had all this extra time on our hands and decided to take the plunge and do it so what's beyond monetary startup costs i think there's a at least a little bit of a learning curve getting going. Huge. <laughs> so, so I mean, how does, how, was it yeah. like, as you mentioned, you've kind of been thinking about this for a while. So it's like you spent some time researching and thinking and researching and thinking and then took the plunge or was it still despite that, like uh, now we've got them. Oh crap. Like what, what do we do? Is there any of those kind of moments? <laughs> There was because I bought a coop that was too small for the birds. Oh. <laughs> Instead of actually doing my research and talking to people about people that have been raising birds in their backyard for a long time, they actually build a coop because the prefab coops that companies make are way too small. So, um, yeah, so that was the first mistake. And so we had to build our own. Uh, fortunately, before the price of lumber and uh, went shot up during the pandemic, we, we were able yeah. to get it done before then. Um, but yeah, so I've learned a ton through social media, like Facebook groups have been my lifeline of, you know, how do I deal with a chick chicken or what do I feed the chickens? Um, it's, it's been pretty incredible, the power of social networking to find out all this new things that I had to learn. Yeah. And so since they have personalities, do they all have names now? Since I'm assuming they're they're never going to be dinner they're just they're providing eggs and they're yeah. you know part of the family now is it the, the, the names and collars and and you know take them for walks and all the routine <laughs> well sometimes we let them free range in our backyard <laughs> yeah occasionally one got loose and got into a neighbor's yard one day but not my fault that was my husband's fault um <laughs> yeah so they all have names and because i'm the primary mom the chicken mom like all the duties fall on me. I took it upon myself to name them what I wanted to name them. Uh -huh. So they're all named after the interns in Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> okay. So if you've ever watched the show, we've got an Izzy, we got a Meredith, we got a Christina, and a Sadie and a Lexi. So gotcha. they're all girls, we think. <laughs> well, I mean, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. If they're laying eggs, that's probably a fair indication that you're on track. Yep, yep. So because I guess I'll call it a proclivity for a lack of a better term, since you've had this proclivity for um, having affection for chickens. Again, I'm, I'm not probably saying this the right way, but you know, you've thought about this for a while. It, you, did you have any like looks from family members, you know, cause I know. So like if, if I, for instance, was going to say, Hey, I'm going to raise chickens in my backyard. I know despite my father having grown up on a farm he would still look at me like, what are you talking about right now? Like, you're not, <laughs> this isn't your thing. It, it, was, it, was it a matter of everybody already knows it was no surprise or were there still some like, um, like Rachel, we need to sit down and have a talk. Yeah. <laughs> my mom doesn't understand it. <laughs> okay. And certainly my in-laws don't understand it, but they think it's cute. Okay. They wouldn't pet the birds. <laughs> like you know here i'm holding holding the chicken under my arm and saying look this is a really friendly chicken she's not going to bite you and they wouldn't get near it so i think it's just they're kind of um 
they're, they're not animal lovers, right? They're not biologists. Right. And so I think part of it comes from my background of being biologist and being a naturalist and um, really seeing the beauty in, in the chickens. Um, and some people don't see that and that's okay. Yeah. But they appreciate it. And they, like my in-laws and my, and, um, and my mom and dad, they see the, the kids really enjoying the chickens, enjoying that this is a new hobby for the family. Mm. And so they really think that that's a good thing for them because they're learning a little bit of responsibility and they're learning um, how to take, how to care for them, how to maintain their health, um, those kinds of things. So. Yeah. So then, it, it, I mean, it seems like that's that kind of love respect admiration um for animals in general is that kind of what led you to the biology path i think so okay so then maybe a good clarifying question how did you end up going biology versus like veterinary where's the split off how you know how do you what led you one way versus the other? Because just in general, if we say I love animals, I know um, like in college, I was taking horseback riding through the college and they had vets come to take care of the horses. And I really enjoyed the horses and the vets were like, Hey, you know, you can shadow us in this. I'm like, I'm not, I love animals, but I'm not interested in veterinary work. So I'm just curious how, you know, that, that split or designation, idea came for you yeah it it all boils down to i had an outstanding teacher and undergraduate okay um so and i've I've always loved the oceans i never lived near the ocean Mm -hmm. but i always loved studying them um and i had a marine science class as a junior at davidson college and um just this teacher that was so enthusiastic loved the subject and i think he was like 75 80 years old still teaching mm-hmm. he would take us out into the field so we would take a field trip um to the coast and this he was so excited every day to talk about marine science um it made me excited and um, made me study harder and made me investigate on my own um and you know i i knew i liked biology but i didn't know what f- type of biology i wanted to go into mm-hmm. um And so I took two years off after school to work in the real world, real world. Um, (laughs) I worked as a swim coach and I worked at a YMCA and I coached my college team. And I was thinking, what do I do? What do I do? And, and I really wanted to study the oceans. And so I started looking around, where can I study the oceans? What institutions can I do that at? What kind of mentors can I find? So it all started with a great teacher. I always think that's interesting just how, you know, in some ways it seems like luck, but there's something infectious about that, that attitude from a great mentor or teacher, like somebody who respects and loves their field so much that like that rubs off on you, even though maybe you had no, no prior inclination or like thought about it. It's like, they're excited. So you're excited. Yeah. It's like just right together. It's, it's nice when that happens. Yeah. So have you, have it is, I guess, since at the time, if that professor was 70 or 80, are they still alive? Have you reached back out to them since you've kind of gone further into the field? Great story. Um, I have actually heard from the professor at several times in my professional career because I kept in touch with my professors from Davidson and mm-hmm. they knew that I was an oceanographer. 
Uh, and at some points, um, he would email me names of students that were interested in the field, and I would um, reach out to current college students and talk to them about what it's like to be an oceanographer. And it's not whales <laughs> and sea lions, <laughs> right? We're studying the chemistry of the ocean, the physics of the ocean, mm -hmm. and microbes mostly, because um, they're the important stuff. The, the whales, the fish, <laughs> the sea lions, they, they don't really matter that much. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and he came to my 15 year reunion and it happened that um, I was able to see him in person again uh, 15 years after I graduated. So yeah, that was really exciting and really fulfilling for me to see him again. That's great you were able to keep in touch and then also yeah. provide some guidance because I know, you kind of thinking back on that time, you're, you're going through, I always say it's, it's one of the most insane propositions to try to ask an 18 year old what they want to do with the rest of their life. You know what I mean? So having some guidance of people that have already passed that point, gotten into whatever they're going to do, just like that professor kind of spread that you know, infectious enthusiasm, sometimes it's easier, at least in my opinion, to see when you have somebody out there doing it, like, does this click with me? Does that sound like a good time? Because as you mentioned, like, people get distracted by the shiny objects, which are the whales, basically, like, oh, like, it's all about the whales. Uh, no, there's, <laughs> there's lots and lots of life going on in the ocean that are not whales. Yeah. So, um, but thinking, thinking about that, um, how do you get to be out at sea for a hundred days doing research? Like, yeah. was that, was that like a one-off job? Was that, it was a larger, like a, a, a niche part of an overall scope of research you were working on? How, how does that occur? Yeah. So I've been on, um, several, uh, research expeditions, um, over a period of about 10 years, um, starting when I was actually more than longer than that. So I started going on these expeditions, 2003 as part of my uh, graduate work at William and Mary. Um, and this was probably the best course I've ever taken, but part of the course is that you had to go on a boat for two weeks and do research on fish mm -hmm. um, and study the biodiversity um, off the coast of um, Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And I mean, what better field trip than that? Right. <laughs> I, I thought it was awesome. And we were studying these really deep sea fish that live 2,000 to 4,000 meters deep. And so that's over a mile deep. And so it's permanently dark. Mm -hmm. So these fish were unlike anything you've ever seen in your life. They've got huge teeth. Um, and they've got really flimsy bodies. They're not muscular. These are definitely fish you don't want to eat. So it started with that. And I was hooked on ocean research after that. Um, I got to work on a couple of submersible dives after mm -hmm. that. Um, and then, um, a couple of other times throughout my career, a lot of these research expeditions are funded through, um, the National Science Foundation, uh, the NSF or NOAA. Um, and, um, if you're uh, a principal investigator and you're, um, you know, you work as a professor at a university, you can apply for money through the NSF or for NOAA to go on these research trips. Um, and they're, the grants are pretty substantial because you need a lot of money to go out to see, right? right. Several millions of dollars of grants. So um, I always had the benefit of being a student or a postdoc at the time 
and um, going as a researcher for my principal investigator and doing the work for them that they proposed to do. So the longest cruise I went on was 40 days um, on a boat off the coast of Chile. Um, and then others have ranged in a period of time from like seven days to, to that time. So, so when, um, I'm going to walk back a little bit with you, but when you're doing that initial research, you're looking at like the, the deep sea fish, are you working with um, like robotic submersibles or like how, how are you looking at the fish? Right. So what we do is we trawl a large, a huge net behind the boat. Okay. So um, you you pull up to the station, wherever you want to find the fish, you, you drop the huge net um, and then pull it off the back of the boat called the stern. Mm. And then you, it's called trawling. And so you drive the boat at one to two to three knots very slowly and drag up all the fish. And then you pull up the net onto the back deck and then um, all the fish die in the process. And we're talking not just fish, but jellies, um, squid, um, squids, um, lots and lots of amphipods like shrimp. Mm -hmm. And so you bring the net up um, when they're all dead and then count them. So you have to physically sort them into species and, and enumerate who's there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I wish it was robotics and that we wouldn't have to kill the fish. Right. Um, but that's one of the things, if, if you want to find out what's there, sometimes you have to make that sacrifice. So we attempt to make as little sacrifice as possible and only go to places that we know there's a sustainable enough population that we wouldn't cause further harm. Right. Well, and that's something that I think it, it, for people not familiar with like the kind of work you do or I'll say ecological work in general is that there's, there's so much cataloging that ends up with dead animals. You kind of wonder like, are we doing harm by doing this study? So that's, maybe I guess I'll let you explain, or you already kind of touched on it, like how that works um, when you know, you're collecting specimens or doing counts like that. How, how do you determine um, that, you're making a net positive impact. Yeah, that's a really good ethical question. Um, and now that I'm thinking about it and pondering it, I think that's beyond my expertise because I haven't, <laughs> you know, I, I am sure that there are people in science ethics that have thought about that. Um, you, we always have to remember that the amount of um, specimens that we're taking for scientific research pales in comparison to what deep sea fishing vessels are getting. Right. right? Um, and a lot of the research that, that biologists do on fish populations is um, to ensure that fisheries aren't depleting the, the, the catch, right? Mm -hmm. the, the species that are there. So um, I, I, I wouldn't even be able to quantify how many fish uh, science, scientists are taking as, a, as compared to like fisheries biologists, but it's, it's going to be minuscule. Mm -hmm. It's going to be very, very tiny. Yeah. yeah. I, I just guess, I mean, you know, it, you're not an ethics professor, so it, it, it's fine not to have the most like perfectly rounded, prepared answer. Right. Um, but I just know like, um, my fiance's brother's kind of in a similar field and uh, you know, we went out to see him graduate from university of Colorado and they've got, you know, their whole department, you go in the department, they have 
uh, all these different insect specimens and all of these different wildlife specimens. And um, I've spoken to other people. I, I wish I could remember who right now. I've spoken to another researcher who was working on bees and it was like, I can't remember if they collected like a million bees over like a year or two years or something like a lot of bees. And then we think about, you know, there's the ideation of the bees are in trouble. Yeah. We're collecting all these bees and trying to figure out it's hard. I think for the average person to wrap their head around, Hey, this, the scientist is going out doing this thing aren't they actually doing the opposite of what they say they're going to be doing? So that's, I like to kind of let you square that in your own words instead of people like guessing, you know what I mean? Yeah. The bottom line is um, uh, the science is needed in order to sustain what's there. Right. Right. Um, and that, that's irrefutable. Um and there are, there are some parts of science that you cannot do unless you um, sacrifice a very small number. And we're talking like, you know, teeny tiny amount. Right. Um, you know, my dissertation research was on bacteria in a lab. Um, and so it's very different studying microbes, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is the bulk of my research, um, bulk of my bent bench science research and that um you know there there are no ethics about killing a bunch of bacteria right. in the name of science but there are when you consider animals that have um backbones mm -hmm. right so when scientists want to do a study on any animal with a backbone any vertebrate they have to go through um, an institutional review board process in order to get approval of doing something to that animal Right, but you could do anything you want to a jellyfish, right? Because they don't have a backbone. Gotcha. Um, so, I, I, I would, when when I think about these things, I always try to think about the position of a scholar to think about these these questions that are very very important, and collaborate with people that know a little bit more than me, <laughs> and and think about the ethics of it a little bit more. Um, Yeah. I guess I'll say for, for you listening, um, which you probably, if you're listening to this, you're probably already familiar, but if you're not, um, Rachel mentioned the Institutional Review Board, the IRB, which goes over anytime. I'll say, I'll say generally speaking, when most research is going to be done, it's going to go through an IRB, which is a group of people at any given institution that looks at, um, the ethics and the study and tries to make sure that you, you know, harm's not being done to put it in a kind of blunt way. Um, so there are people that studies have to pass through, like, like Rachel can't just be like, I'm going to go do whatever. I like, you can't just like be like, I'm going on a deep sea fishing adventure and we're just going to start trawling for fish as long as they like, there's, there's people that, that check these things there are checks and balances in the academic community to be able to do those things. So I just wanted to clarify that because that's an important point to, 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 to my inquiry is it's, it's not a free for all in academia to just do absolutely whatever you want. That's right. And 
Um, so that especially applies to any laboratory animal. Mm -hmm. So, and right now with the COVID-19 outbreak, they're doing a lot of um, laboratory animal studies, especially in things like ferrets and minks. Um, but more on point to my research, the research that you do out in the field out at sea um, has gone through, a, in order to do it, in order to get the research funding, you have to go through a peer review process in order to get the money. So um, you wouldn't go out and just start trawling a bunch of animals. Um, other colleagues, your peers as scientists have to approve that they agree that this is a good thing to do and that this is needed to answer a very important science question. So the process of peer review is probably the best way we have uh, to make that delineation as right. um, is this important enough for science that we can go make this um, action. Yeah. Um, so I, I did want to ask you about your research in partic particular. I think you were studying at least at one point the nitrogen cycle in the oceans and kind of yeah. the, the effects of maybe nitrogen depletion or, or it's changing in oceanic situations. Am I on base here? You are so on base. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, some of my research um, involved looking at uh, parts of the world's oceans that are severely depleted in oxygen. And uh, you know oxygen is that you need it to breathe. And right. so do things like fish, squid, whales, right? Um, but there are parts of the oceans that um, don't have any. And it turns out that those parts of the oceans are expanding. And that has big negative consequences, as you can imagine, and that it decreases the living space mm -hmm. of bigger animals. And so the reason this is happening is changes um, in the microbial um, density Mm -hmm. changes in phytoplankton um, proliferation, um, changes in the microbial nitrogen cycle. So I was looking at how are, the, um, are that one, is that um, area of low oxygen increasing and expanding? And we turn uh, the question and uh, we were able to answer is yes, we studied a certain patch of um, water off the western coast of Mexico, and we found out over a 40-year period, um, ending in 2012, it is expanding. Okay, it's getting the area of no oxygen is getting bigger, and that's not good news, right? Because we're can in the we're continuing to pump out fossil fuels. We're continuing to um, negatively impact our oceans, and there is this is a not a good thing. Um, so, yeah. One of the things that I, I think it, it makes sense, but it also, I have trouble with, um, maybe the listener will be ahead of me here, but thinking about, say, these um, areas of the ocean that are nitrogen rich and lacking in oxygen, um, how how do they, I'll say stay contained, because I think about water and, it, and like it's going to disperse, right? So, so how does a, yeah. an area of, of water stay in a high concentration of nitrogen without basically dispersing and, and you know, filling back up or averaging out 
with with oxygenated environments. Okay, okay. So why is that area pretty much stationary over right. that period? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, you're right. So it and it all ref, all refers to ocean physics, okay. which is not my forte, <laughs> but I had to learn a little bit about Me it. Me either, but but between us, it's going to be you that knows. So right, right. So um, because of the ocean circulation, and so this is currents mm -hmm. um, that are driven by the winds, and where the continents are. Okay. Um, and so because of prevailing currents, the water circulation a patch of ocean water um, will stay very consistent in um, the nutrient and the gas profile over a period of time. Um, so you can think of it, um, let's think about it a little bit um, more close to home. Uh, you can think of like uh, Mississippi River is mm -hmm. always um, outflowing into the Gulf of Mexico. Right. And in that area, uh, because you have um, a very consistent output and um, you can you know that there's going to be nutrients and gas profiles that are going to be pretty much similar through the year they're going to fluctuate based on how much farming's going on how much fertilizer people put in mm -hmm. um, in their lands and have gone to runoff but you can expect that patch of water at the at the mississippi river delta to be more similar over time as compared to a patch of water elsewhere in the Gulf of Mexico, just because of that physical process of mm -hmm. the river runoff coming off. Gotcha. Circulation. Okay. Like I said, it's, it's one of those things where it's, some of it seems intuitive and some of it is like, wait, but this, is this, why is this happening? And then as you know, as you explain anything about currents or I, as you were explaining it, I was thinking about thinking about a river and thinking about, say, there's a, an, an eddy or, or something that kind of uh, swirls the current back in the opposite direction, and then you have debris kind of pile up in that area. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, that, it, all the current's going this way, but then something, for some reason, has, you know, caused the current to change in that area. That's kind of a microcosm of maybe what we're talking about. And maybe it's not the, an exact uh, replica, but I was just thinking about the, the physics of the water there and how that kind of traps things in that environment despite everything else moving in a contrary motion. That's right. And you, this brings to mind, if, if you heard of the Great Garbage Patch in the Pacific, right? right. right. It's, it's uh, super sad to hear, um, but last that I heard, and I don't remember how long ago I heard this, but the, there was a patch of um, microplastics, meaning like, um, Oh, I'm thinking like definitely less than a centimeter um, mm -hmm. and smaller. Um, so we're not talking big, you know, Coke bottles, but small right. broken down right. pieces of plastic just circulating out in the middle of the Pacific, the size of Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I was watching 60 Minutes where I heard it. Some entrepreneurs were um, going out there and trying to find new ways to clean it all up. Right. Very hard, though, in a huge square footage that. That is currently there mm -hmm. right yeah well and we've i i actually had uh, a previous guest on maddie steer who's working on research in nanoplastics in the oceans and their effect and uh, one of the things yeah. she talked about was the 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 issues with well yes of course we want to clean this up but then how do you get the things that are even smaller that it's not so easy to you know to take and then those get into 
the entire ecosystem in in the plants and the animals and all this all the things and they're they're so pervasive so we yeah we've touched on that a little bit i can't remember the episode number right on the top of my head but all right so um, listen to that podcast yeah let's go back and listen to that one we'll tie it all together so from from there um i think before we got going you said you know you've got kids now so spending large quantities of time at sea wasn't quite as feasible so you kind of made a little bit of a career shift so so what are you doing now yeah that, that's right. I, I definitely know female scientists that have continued to have children and, um, and continue lives going to sea, but it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, everybody's a little bit different. So um, currently um, working at a professional science society and I help faculty, college faculty who teach biology and microbiology um, I help them learn how to do their job a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So we talk a lot about um, good teaching techniques. Um, these days we're talking a lot about um, dismantling systemic racism in their classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking a lot about how to help people that um, are maybe underserved um, in science, um, pe- um, black um, indigenous populations, um, people um, of lower socioeconomic status, what can we do as teachers to help them succeed in biology and microbiology? These are people that we really need as scientists um, in our country. Um, You know, science is no longer white and male. (laughs) And the problem is, is that the way that a lot of faculty teach is uh, solely lecture and because it's the way that other teachers were taught, but the the research and education shows that this is not the way that the majority of students learn best is mm-hmm. lecture. So we so I'm trying to find new ways to help college faculty teach without doing lecture, and to help reach out and help all the students succeed, um, and not just this the science, not just people that are currently well represented in science. So. Does that mean that you're looking at things like like uh, a methodology to get your hands dirty while you're learning? And I, I don't mean that in like a negative sense. I mean that like um, if we think about the sciences, like the lab, you're getting your hands dirty when you're going to a lab versus lecture. You're actually in the middle of doing something while you're learning and applying versus just sitting and listening to the professor tell you about you know, this is the equations and this is how this works and all that kind of thing. Is it, is it methods like that or, or can you tell me more about that? Absolutely. And that's, so I, we call it active learning. Mm -hmm. Um, It's finding a way that you can interact with the content and interact with your peers, with your fellow students and interact with your teacher so that you can deepen your knowledge and you can use it for other things, for things other than just finishing a multiple choice test. I know I always try to remember that um, what do I want my students to take with them when they leave their class? I don't really care if you can spout out facts. That's what Google's for, right? right? You can take any kind of MOOC you want to learn the content, but I think the real value of the education is um, talking to your peers, um, getting their points of view about the content, learning from them at the same time, and deepening your knowledge about how does this relate to what's going on around me and the crazy world we have. Mm-hmm. 
right? Um, and you can't get that from just a teacher standing on front of the room and spouting off facts and here's a table, you know, tell me what's going on. So, and then another part of it is learning to become science literate, where, you know, you're given some new data, say about COVID-19, um, or something going on in the ocean, and thinking about it critically in a way that um, is grounded in evidence and facts, and making it your own, and then taking action about it. So I want my students to care about what they're doing and to care about the world around them and mm. make decisions in their daily lives that have an impact that have a positive impact on our planet around us. Gotcha. Well, and that's being able to look at literature that you aren't automatically familiar with and, in in being able to absorb the implications of it is something that's, I would say is probably lacking um, in a general sense right now. Um, COVID-19 obviously is something that's contentious at the moment, but even not, you know, disassociating, disassociating ourselves from that and just thinking about anything, we don't talk about climate change or what, whatever contentious subject where it's like science says this, science as a whole, obviously there's going to be some detractors always or, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it, it it seems like if we could increase science literacy, and that's part of my hope with the, the show is allowing people like you to speak directly to people versus just saying, hey, go read my paper, which people may be like, I can't do it. I don't, I don't even know where to start. It, it seems like we could come to a easier consensual understanding of topics if we were all able to speak the same language. Absolutely. So, I would totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rachel, as we're starting to run down on time, I'm asking everybody uh, the same question this year because uh, it kind of transects discipline, sports, all that kind of stuff. So I'd like your opinion on what you think the purpose of sport is. That is a great question. <laughs> wow. It, so you know okay so when I think about this I think of why do I have my three preschoolers in sports right now Mm -hmm. and one one thing that I have especially one of my children in sports is to learn perseverance through Mm -hmm. difficult things and difficult challenges right Um, and I think that's the probably the biggest thing that I learned from a career swimming is I had so many ups and downs, injuries, you know, changing coaches, losing pools, you know, not being able to train and finding ways to persevere through that in new and different ways. Um, And I think, you know, for one of my children, that's, that's my primary purpose is to have her in sports right now is to learn, Hey, things aren't going to go your way, but pick yourself up and keep going and you're going to learn at the end, um, learn about yourself. I think that's another big thing that I've learned in sports is you learn a ton about who you are as a person um, and in new ways. Yeah. And for me right now, the thing that I'm learning about sports is um, continuing to maintain some relationships with those around me outside Mm -hmm. of my house, 
right? I think that that's one thing that sports is, that sports gives us that unfortunately we can't do that much right now during this year, current year. And the thing that I'm missing is like swimming, working out with my own team. Mm-hmm. Um, so you learn a lot about other people, um, you know, it attracts people of um, that all like swimming together. Um, and so there you go. You have something to talk about right there. So right. Right. I think that that's what, it's a really meaningful thing for me. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, if people want to see your research, keep up with you, see what you're up to, where can they find you? Yeah. Um, so my Twitter account's not that old, but that's probably the best place to find me. Okay. Dr. Rachel Horak, H-O-R-A-K. Um, and yeah, I have Instagram, but I don't use it. So, so that's okay. I, I don't <laughs> either. So no big deal. So check her out on Twitter where a lot of scientists seem to be aggregating and many of my guests are. So um, that's a great place to keep up with people. And I know um, you will probably be tweeting and retweeting to research and interesting stuff going on. Um, just like many of my guests do. So check out Rachel there. Rachel, thanks for hanging out with me today. Thank you.